Blog Talk Radio. everybody. Joe Biden has waved the white flag. We got this $1.9 trillion COVID relief package passed, or it's about to be passed. Um, so what's next on the agenda? Dickie McGee's acts. They're going to try to do infrastructure. It's going to get absolutely nowhere. I'm going to explain exactly why that is in a minute. Um, unless things change, it, it's not going anywhere. Uh, Milo Yiannopoulos is back in the news. I can't wait to tell you why. I can't wait to tell you that story. Um, Tim Ryan has gone viral for screaming on the floor of Congress. I'll tell you why that's incredibly ironic when we get to it. Um, The Nevada Democratic Caucus is now all Democratic Socialists. Amazing. And Biden forgets the name of his defense secretary. So, A lot of stuff to get to. Let's go ahead and jump right into it. And um, let's do that with Biden's white flag. Here we go. So this brings me no pleasure to talk about. I wish it wasn't the case, but it is. Take a look at this report here. The president's preference is to not get rid of the filibuster. Look at what we've accomplished the past six weeks. So this is directly from the Biden administration. The preference is to not get rid of the filibuster. Now, you got to just cross your fingers and hope that this doesn't mean, hey, we also don't want to reform it. Because the thing that's been in the news recently is the idea of reforming the filibuster back to the original filibuster, which is actually the idea that I support, which is you make them talk. Used to be the case you have to get up there like in the movie Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, old-time classic, in order to filibuster, you had to go up there and talk and actually filibuster. That makes it a lot harder for a filibuster to succeed. 
Now the way it works is you just have, you just have to declare we are filibustering and they need 60 votes in order to overcome it. Okay, well, that's ridiculous and it's undemocratic and, you know, it's insane because you're never going to get anything done, okay, unless you do it through budget reconciliation, which you only get three cracks at um, for the year, I believe, and that means there's only a handful of things that can get through with 51 votes as opposed to 60. So Biden saying this is a big deal. Now, somebody needs to follow up and ask him, hey, are you also against reforming it? Somebody needs to ask him that. I guess they haven't yet, but we know he doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. But that gets to Joe Manchin. So Joe Manchin just did an interview, I believe it was with Axios, and um, he said, hey, any legislation from here on out that doesn't get at least some Republican support, I'm not going to be for it. Okay, but none of the Republicans are going to agree to any of the things that the Democrats are pushing. You want to know how I know that? What's happened so far in the Biden administration and what happened under eight years of President Obama. I mean, there there was no Republican support for Obamacare, which was the Republican health care reform. That's an individual mandate system that keeps the for-profit health insurance system in place and mandates that people go buy on the private market. It's their idea. The Heritage Foundation came up with it. Newt Gingrich and Chuck Grassley supported it. Mitt Romney did it in Massachusetts. They opposed it. So this is what happens. I mean, there were zero Republican votes for the $1.9 trillion um, COVID relief package. Zero. Josh Hawley pretends to be Mr. Populist. He was against the $15 minimum wage. They're not going to support anything. So when Joe Manchin comes out there and says, hey, everything from here on out needs to be bipartisan or or I'm going to oppose the legislation no matter what's in it. Okay, well, then what you're saying is we're not going to get anything done at all from now until the rest of Biden's term. That's what you're saying. That's what you're saying. And then for Biden to say, oh, my preference is to not get rid of the filibuster. Well, then you're saying we're not going to get anything done the rest of the time in office. Now, I mean, listen, guys, I wish I had better news for you, but if Manchin actually acts on what he said and opposes everything if it's not bipartisan from here on out, and if Biden is against getting rid of the filibuster or even reforming the filibuster, literally no major legislation will pass for the rest of Biden's time in office. No major legislation. None. None. And I hate to say I told you so, and perhaps it's a little bit too early to say I told you so, but when everybody was asking me, as soon as Biden got elected, one of the questions that I got from people was, hey, how do you think it's going to go? How do you think the Biden era is going to go? And what I said is, you're going to have the first like week or two, he's going to sign a bunch of executive orders that are pretty good, Um, there's going to be a handful of policies that we get through that people are going to like. But then after that first week or two, that's it. Nothing else is going to get done. So you're going to have full-on Republican obstruction, and you're going to have Biden and the Democrats still trying to do the goofy, like, bipartisanship stuff. And so nothing's going to get done. By the way, let me add this point. It doesn't matter if Republicans in Washington, D.C. don't sign on to your legislation. You can still have bipartisan legislation in the sense that you push for policies and get it through with just Democratic votes, but the policies themselves have support among the Republican base. 
See, that's the thing. Like, $15 minimum wage is pretty popular among Republican voters. This $1.9 trillion COVID relief package is very popular. among. It's like 59% among Republican voters. So I'd argue this bill is bipartisan. Just because the swamp isn't for it doesn't mean it's not bipartisan. Yeah, Republicans in Washington, D.C. are TFG. They're too far gone. They're Cretans, and they're all bought off by corporate America. A lot of the Democrats are, too. So, like, the way you can pitch it is, yeah, we did it with all Democratic votes, but it's bipartisan legislation because over half of Republican voters supported it. So we got to start thinking of these things in new ways. Unfortunately, what they mean is, what Manchin means is, I want Republican votes, Republican senators to get on board with this stuff. They're not going to be in favor of anything. They view their sole job as obstruction, which is why they passed a $1.9 trillion tax cut under, under Donald Trump, which added to the deficit and the debt. And now they turn around and they're doing deficit and debt fear-mongering. What happened? You guys were just in favor of policies that increase the debt and the deficit. There's another thing that's happening now. Tom Cotton's out there saying, the Democrats just gave the Boston bomber $1,400. Unacceptable. So they pick like the worst criminals they can find, and they're like, oh, my God, look, the Democrats want to pay them. You know who else wanted to pay them? Tom Cotton. He voted for two relief packages under Donald Trump where the same thing happened. Money also went to inmates. And people made a good point about that. It's like that money is actually more going towards the families of said inmates, not necessarily the inmates. They're behind bars. They, they can't really go anywhere or do anything, right? So, but, yeah, Tom Cotton supported that under Trump. Now he acts like, oh, my God, look at what the Democrats are doing. Unacceptable. This is what it's going to be like for the next four years. They're going to use bullshit partisan hack arguments to come after you, and you have Manchin saying, we need Republican votes to get anything through, or else I'm even going to be against it. And you got Biden saying, yeah, I, I don't want to get rid of the filibuster. Okay, well, then get used to doing absolutely nothing from here on out. But that gets to the main point, which is that's what they want. That's what Biden wants. I mean, look at how quickly they ran away from the $15 minimum wage, and their excuse was the parliamentarian. We kept it with the parliamentarian was the thing. And like, oh, my God, it's the parliamentarian. What are we going to do? They ruled that we can't do it, so my hands are tied. I can't do it. Even though that's nonsense, that's like blaming your staff. That's just an advisory opinion. You know, the Republicans, whenever the parliamentarian would tell them something they didn't like, they're like, that's nice. You're dismissed. We're going to do it anyway. Democrats, they didn't do that. And the real reason is because they don't want to do it. So they're looking for excuses to not do too much. And that's exactly what's happening here with Biden. But, you know, just understand, unless something changes, unless Manchin changes his mind with what he said, or, or Biden supports filibuster reform, then nothing major is going to get done the rest of the time in office. They're working on some sort of infrastructure bill now, dead on arrival. Dead on arrival. No way it's going anywhere. By the way, the House uh, just got their rear in gear, and they're passing some decent legislation. We'll talk a little bit about this later. There's this bill called the PRO Act, which is a pro-union piece of legislation. It just passed um, the House of Representatives with every Democrat except one, um, and there were even five Republicans across the aisle and supported it. And what the, the bill does is it classifies gig workers, independent contractors, as employees, which gives them more labor rights. It effectively kills right-to-work laws, which are good. The right-to-work laws are really right-to-work for less. They're anti-union laws. And it bans um, company-enforced anti-union propaganda, where they try to indoctrinate you into thinking that unions are bad. So it's a good piece of legislation. It just passed the House. Again, DOA in the Senate. 
I mean, it's, just, it's not going to go anywhere. So this is what we're going to run into time and time and time and time again. And um, if Manchin doesn't change his mind on that point he made to Axios, and if Biden doesn't say, I'm in favor of filibuster reform, then that's it. We're done. We're done here. Wrap it up. You know, the rest of the next four years are just, it's a waste of time. You're going to get nothing out of it. Nothing's going to happen. And, um, but again, maybe that's what the Democrats want. Maybe they just want to do the tiniest tweaks around the edges so they can pat themselves on the back and say, oh, I was a success. Look at me. Now's not the time for that. Now's the time for FDR-style massive change. Okay. All right, next. I hate to keep talking about Trump, but I got to keep talking about Trump. I don't really have a choice. I don't really have a choice. Here we go. President Trump is back in the news again for a pretty interesting reason, if I don't say so myself. He released a statement. Let me show you here. A statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th President of the United States of America. No more money for rhinos. That stands for Republicans in name only. They do nothing but hurt the Republican Party and our great voting base. They will never lead us to greatness. Send your donation to Save America PAC at DonaldJTrump.com. We will bring it all back stronger than ever before. Wow. Now, some people might not know what to make of this, but let me, let me break it down for you because this is, this is really fascinating. What he's doing here is he's solidifying that iron grip that he has on the Republican Party. And effectively, what he's saying is, don't give money to the RNC. Don't give money to any other you know, Republican outlets, Republican groups. Uh, I don't trust them, and you shouldn't trust them because they support some rhinos, Republicans in name only. So instead, I want you to give money to me, to the Save America PAC at DonaldJTrump.com. Now, where's that money going? I don't know, dog. I don't know. Do you know? No, nobody really knows. Uh, Nominally, the idea is, oh, you know, we'll pick the Trumpist Republican candidates and politicians and we'll donate to them. But do we know that's where all of it is going? Of course we don't. This reminds me quite a bit of when Trump lost the election, they this idea of saying, hey, the election is rigged, the election is fraudulent, we're going to overturn it, so we need small dollar donations, so you got to donate to us. And a lot of people gave a lot of money, including some big donors who gave hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe some even gave millions. I remember covering a story on this. It was at least hundreds of thousands. And... Um, If you read the fine print in the pitch for money, it was really weaselly because up to a certain amount, and the amount was thousands of dollars, up to a certain amount, that money was just going to pay down his campaign debt. So it wasn't even going for the thing that they were pitching it as if it was going for that, namely trying to overturn the election. Who knows how much the legal bills were? They lost virtually every single court case. There were over like 60 court cases. They lost every one but one, and the one that they won was procedural nonsense. Nothing hinged on it. So they raised all this money. I guess some of it went towards those legal bills, but most of it went to Donald Trump. 
and went to his various groups and his campaign. Now we're seeing a very, very similar thing here. He finds himself in the position of, even though he lost the election, having an iron grip on the Republican Party in the sense that the base loves him more than they love the Republican brand. And so now, this is that GOP civil war that we were talking about. And this is, this is a bold move from the Trumpist side of this war. This is a bold move because effectively, listen, he says this, this could really, really, really hinder the RNC and other official Republican Party groups. I'm sure that behind the scenes, you have the more establishment Republicans, the Liz Cheney's, those types, George W. Bush's. They're probably panicking to see this. Mitch McConnell, who, by the way, there's reports that he's sick and he won't even survive much longer, but... He probably sees this and, oh my goodness, this is Trump stabbing the rest of the Republican Party in the back and twisting the knife here. I mean, this is the number one guy in the party saying, don't give money to the party, give it to me. And again, some of this money I'm sure will go to Trumpist candidates that he approves of, but a lot of it I'm sure is going to Donald J. Trump. And this is, you know, recently he sent a cease and desist letter to the RNC saying, stop using my likeness on products. Again, that's a shot across the bat. That's, I don't know who you think you're fucking with here. I'm going to get a cut of everything involving me. So it's a weird hybrid that we're watching right now. It's a hybrid of Trump's business instincts and how he wants to make money mixed with the Republican civil war and how he's still the leading figure in the Republican party and how he wants to keep an iron grip on that party and probably run in 2024. What's amazing is watching how the other side of this Republican Civil War is just laying in a chalk outline of themselves. Yeah, I guess daddy got us. That's what they're thinking right now. And if he keeps doing stuff like this, the Republican Party will just be a shell of itself. Not that it was ever good. It wasn't. Um, But it'll destroy him. And that's the conundrum they're in. That's the pickle that they're in. It's like, okay, Trump runs and wins the primary in 2024, well, he just lost a general election. He could easily lose again. In fact, now the conventional wisdom is he will lose again if he runs. So they don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do. And Mitch McConnell was caught between, when it came to impeaching Trump, hey, do I impeach him and try to make it so that he can never run for office again, which would get the, the headache, you know, we'd get rid of the headache that we're facing now. Or, but if I do impeach him, the base will turn on us. And so we have no support in the Republican Party. But if I don't impeach him, the donors are going to be pissed at us because he's too much of a hothead and he scares the donors. So it was a catch-22. He didn't know what to do. He picked the middle path, which was incredibly Weasley, which was like, you know, let me slam Trump in my commentary over the January 6th thing, but also say I can't vote to impeach. So he got the worst of all worlds, and now Trump is emboldened, and he's doing stuff like this. So congratulations. The number one con man in the world is now the head figure of your party, and uh, he's going to do stuff like this moving forward. Okay. All right, let's talk about Nevada Democrats.
this story is amazing. So Nevada Democrats, there was a clean sweep at the state level for Nevada Democrats. Now all of them are Democratic socialists. Literally all except I think one is a dues-paying Democratic socialist, and even the one who's not a dues-paying Democratic socialist, I think identifies as a Democratic socialist or something. So basically, the Bernie movement, which took over Nevada, if you remember the primary results in Nevada, it wasn't even close, son. It wasn't even close. Bernie destroyed everybody in sight. And so the organizational efforts stayed there after the Bernie win, and they organized for state and local races which, by the way, is something that should be copied in the rest of the 50 states because that's where a lot of the real power rests, is this is what the Koch brothers knew all along. They would fund these far-right candidates at the uh, state and local level, and they'd take over all these state houses, and they'd get a lot of their policies implemented that way. Well, that's what the left needs to do, and that's Democratic Socialists are sort of working on that, and the state where we've had the most success so far is Nevada. And they wiped, wiped out the more corporate centrist Democrats. But look at this. This is from The Intercept. Not long after Judith Whitmer won her election on Saturday to become chair of the Nevada Democratic Party, she got an email from the party's executive director, Alana Mounts. The message from Mounts began with a note of congratulations before getting to her main point. She was quitting. So was every other employee. And so were all the consultants and the staff would be taking severance checks with them. Thank you very much. On March 6th, the coalition of progressive candidates backed by the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America took over the leadership of the Nevada Democratic Party, sweeping all five party leadership positions in a contested election that evening. Whitmer, who had been chair of the Clark County Democratic Party, was elected chair. The establishment had prepared for the loss, having recently moved $450,000 out of the party's coffers and into the state Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee's account. The DSCC will put the money toward the 2022 re-election bid of Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, a vulnerable first-term Democrat. So, there's an amazing fact that I have to share with you guys about this. The corporate right-wing Democrats who were running in Nevada, they called their little group, get this, the Progressive Unity Slate And then they got wiped out by actual democratic socialists. And then they all quit. All the staffers who worked for the more centrist right-wing candidates quit. Remember this story the next time they badger you about unity when you're a lefty and you don't want to fall in line. Remember this story. Guys, it was always a ruse. It was always a ruse. Now, listen, if you're one of those people who happens to have a principled belief on the side of democratic unity, okay, fair enough. But don't get it twisted. Whenever you have the more centrist, right-wing, corporatist Democrats bring up unity, they're playing you. They don't mean it. They don't mean it. In fact, we'll get to another story later, which proves this even further. There's this new book out um, on the Democratic primary, and it turns out behind the scenes, yeah, many centrist Democrats were like, if it's Bernie versus Trump, I don't know what I'm going to do. They never meant it. They never meant unity. They scream unity in your face. 
to try to get you to fall in line and support their people when they happen to get through the primary, fair or not. Um, but when you win, when the left wins, they all quit. They all quit. They're not down for you. They were never down for unity. And that's the thing that's infuriating about all this. Now, I'm actually happy that they're gone, though, because who knows? They weren't going to do their jobs properly behind the scenes. and They'd probably try to undermine left-wing goals at every step. So I'm happy that they're gone. But just understand, it was a ruse, and it was a scam, and they were playing you every step of the way. And every time some centrist goon, some corporate goon talks about unity, they mean you shut up and fall in line for me, and I will never do that for you. So I just need everybody to understand that, that we're not having an honest dialogue and conversation here. We're not. We're not. And sometimes that's, you know, our Achilles heel. It's certainly my Achilles heel, is oftentimes I take people at face value and I take them at their word. And perhaps I shouldn't. Perhaps I should be a lot more uh, thick-skinned and, and cynical and should question intentions and motives more. But here, you don't have to question anything. They're laying it out for you in crystal clear terms. The progressive unity slate staffers were like, the left actually won? I'm done, son. I'm out. Okay. We'll see ya. But listen, there's actually a very positive takeaway from this story. And that takeaway is you never have to be resigned to endless losses. Yes, it's tough being on the left because oftentimes we lose and we're impatient and we want to win it all right now. But man, there's hope. It just takes, it just takes the proper strategy and the proper commitment. That's it. That's all it takes. And so Nevada is a great, you know, story of success here for the left. And who knows how awesome things will be from here on out, what sort of policies will be implemented as a result of, of their wins, you know. Um, but we have to fight back this instinct of nothing's ever going to change and this, like, deep nihilism that people feel. And I'm guilty of it just like everybody else. I feel it from time to time as well. But, no, you'd be surprised. Sometimes there's the snowball effect. You know, it'll just, you get one win and then you're off to the races. And sometimes it just takes the spark of one brave fighter, too, at the national level in order to really change the game. And that's why we've been so hard on the Justice Democrats and the people who are on the left in Congress is because they're not fighting in the way that they're supposed to be fighting. And, and, and I'm better position than maybe anybody to make that point because I was one of the co-founders of Justice Democrats. I knew the conception going into it that this is supposed to be a tea party of the left where you're supposed to make Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi hate you just as much as John Boehner hated the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus. They hated each other. They despised each other. Mark Meadows and John Boehner were mortal enemies, but you got, you know, Justice Democrats calling um, Nancy Pelosi mama bear and falling in line. No, you should be throwing around your weight. You should be leveraging your vote. You should be forcing things through like the $15 minimum wage, but you didn't do it and you're not doing it. And so people should be hard on you as a result of that. But never give in to this nihilism, this feeling of like, no, nothing's ever going to get better. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. And we're proving now at the state and local level that the wins could be right around the corner. You just have to put in the time, the effort, and the organizational work. That's it. So let's get to that. Let's put in the time and the effort and the organizational work. And imagine we do this with 10 states, 25 states, all 50 states. Imagine we could do this. Who knows what we can get done, man? You know, we, 
a lot of state minimum wages are already higher than the national minimum wage of $7.25. But, you know, if you want that $15 minimum wage, you can get it this way. Get it at the state level in, in a variety of states. It's just it's less sexy so people don't pay as much attention to it. And, again, I'm guilty of this just like everybody else. We do a show that's a national show. So, of course, we're going to focus more on national politics. But, yeah, you can get huge left-wing victories this way. In fact, I think the way that we're more likely to win on Medicare for All at this point is state by state. You know, and there was a handful of states that did it, and then it got beaten back by the health insurance companies. Okay, fair enough, but we should take on that fight, and we should actually win that fight. And that's we're more likely to win it state by state than we are at the federal level. So maybe the idea is, you know, let's take over all the states, or as many states as we possibly can, and um, that's how we bring about real fundamental systemic reform. So... Forget all these idiots and assholes who were staffers for the centrist goons. I'm happy that they're gone. But they did just rip the mask off, didn't they? They never meant unity ever, 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 ever. So remember that moving forward. Okay. Now we got to make fun of Biden again. I'm sorry. There's been a pretty big story floating around for a few weeks now, and it's this idea, this problem that Joe Biden has really been dodging the media. He's not doing any press conferences. And I think we're getting to the point where it's like starting to get close to record-breaking territory how much he's dodging the media. Um, now, you know, People will rightly point out, hey, it almost doesn't matter how much Joe's hiding from the media. Nobody was worse than Trump on this front. Okay, I think there's a, a point to be made there. Um, but listen, when it comes to free speech and the First Amendment, both of them are beyond terrible because they didn't pardon Snowden and they didn't pardon Assange. And if anything, they're, Biden just doubled down on Trump's approach there. So they're both as miserable and pathetic as you can get on this front. But there might be a reason why the Biden people are keeping him away and keeping him on very strict scripts because every time he goes out, goes out there and gives a speech, well, not every time, but a lot of the time he goes out there and gives a speech, you watch it and you're like, you know, it looks so good, dog. So this is the new example of it here. This went viral. This is Biden forgetting the name of one of the top people in his administration. The uh, former general, I keep calling him general, but my, my, uh, the guy who runs that outfit over there, uh, I want to make sure we thank the secretary for all he's done to try to implement what we just talked about and for recommending these two women for promotion. Thank you all. May God bless you all, and may God protect our troops.
He looks confused. He sounds confused. And, uh, man, that walk when he goes out of the room, I mean, maybe I'm nitpicking here, but I see this with Romney, too. Man, he gives away his age when he walks, doesn't he? It's so, like, feeble and stiff. But, yeah, so he was forgetting Lloyd Austin's name. That's his Secretary of Defense. By the way, his Secretary of Defense has taken over a million dollars from Raytheon because he sat on the board of Raytheon. That seems to be a little bit of a problem to me. Now, why did we get away with him becoming a Secretary of Defense? Very simply, because they leaned on identity politics. And Lloyd Austin is black. And so they were like, black Secretary of Defense. Look at us, we're so enlightened and woke. Totally ignoring the fact that he took over a million dollars from Raytheon. Now he's incentivized, since he's paid by the defense contractors and he's part of the military-industrial complex, now he's incentivized to be more willy-nilly with our military approach. I'm sorry, that's the reality. But even in this, they made a big deal out of the fact that now there's two women that they've promoted to general or whatever. And they're like, look at us. Women can murder people too. Ah, isn't this wonderful? Don't we love diverse war crimes? I do. God, it's so childish. But we should have known this was coming from a long time ago because I told you it gives the establishment a trick that they lean on often. The trick is, oh, us? We're outlefting you, lefties. Silly lefties are always talking about raising the minimum wage and ending wars and the Green New Deal and ending corruption and, you know, pro-union legislation. Forget all that. Forget all that. We've outlefted you because I'm appointing black people and women, and I even appointed a trans person. Hmm. Pat me on the back. I'm so enlightened and woke. Yeah, but if, if all they're doing is continuing the status quo, spare me. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. It's like that famous tweet, hire more women guards. It was something like, you know, setting up concentration camps at the border or whatever. And the neoliberal response being hire more women guards for those camps. Yeah, that's kind of what we're looking at here with this sort of stuff. But anyway, Biden was incredibly confused. He forgot Lloyd Austin's name. It's hard to watch. And I really do think this is why they keep him away from the media. I think he has good days and he has bad days. And on the days that are a little bit better, they allow him to go out there and give the speeches. Um, On the days that he's worse, they hide him. They hide him. So, you know, this isn't just, I remember we got a lot of shit during the primary. I did a, a video, video compilation of Biden's brain not working. And I released it on my channel. And this was at the time when, Biden surged back into contention, um, you know, after South Carolina, and the media was just pretending like it's not an issue, that his brain's not working very well. And so I released a video that showed a compilation of it. And people were vicious and ruthless about it, where they were saying it's an unfair attack. It's not an unfair attack. I'm showing him in his own words or his inability to get the words. And it was bad. That video was bad. There are times where he's just not with it at all, at all. And so people had a right to know that. Now, those, that information, unfortunately, didn't really land with people. But, yeah, now you're seeing the consequences of it. And you just hope that he's with it enough to finish out his four years. Because who knows how bad it really is? Who knows what percentage of the time he's actually like this? But, yeah, my theory is this is why they're sort of keeping him away from the media and why he's not doing press conferences.
I think this has a lot to do with it. That video was hard to watch, man. It was hard to watch. So I hope he gets it together. And I also hope he stops using these terrible identity politics deflection arguments. Okay. All right. Now let's talk about Tim Ryan. I'm not the biggest fan of Tim Ryan, and I know a lot of you guys aren't either. He ran for president. He got about negative 76% in the polls. Uh, Nobody really liked him. His campaign was a mess. He was flailing. Um, But every now and then, he he has some moments. This is one of those moments. This went viral. By the way, people are speculating he probably did this because he plans on running for the Senate. I think that that's probably true. I get the sense he wants to run for the Senate, um, and he's trying to, like, get some attention here. But here he is on the floor of the House. He's talking about the PRO Act, which is a pro-union piece of legislation. And look at what he says to the right. Mr. Speaker, one of the earlier speakers said, this is the most dramatic change in labor law in 80 years. And I say, thank God. In the late 70s, a CEO made 35 times the worker. Today, it's three to 400 times the worker. And our friends on the other side running around with their hair on fire. Heaven forbid we pass something that's going to help the damn workers in the United States of America. Heaven forbid we tilt the balance that has been going in the wrong direction for 50 years. We talk about pensions, you complain. We talk about the minimum wage increase, you complain. We talk about giving them the right to organize, you complain. But if we're passing a tax cut here, you'd be all getting in line to vote yes for it. Now stop talking about Dr. Seuss and start working with us on behalf of the American workers. I yield back the balance of my time. So listen, that video was good. That video was good. He was yelling. I don't know how many of you remember this, but he attacked Bernie Sanders in the primary and said to him, hey, Bernie, you don't have to yell. Condescending, pedantic garbage. Trying to say, oh, look at the unhinged old man over here. Ha, 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 what a joke. Bernie, you don't have to yell. And here's Tim Ryan yelling. And here's Tim Ryan going viral as a result of him yelling. Man, I hate politicians. I really do. Politicians are garbage, trash, disgusting hypocrites. Like, it's just such deep, profound hypocrisy. And he's not going to even think about it for a second. It's not even going to occur to him that he did the, you don't have to yell, shtick to Bernie. God, he's so obnoxious. Anyway, uh, listen, on the substance of what he's saying here, yeah, of course. Republicans, it, certainly conservative media, they are going all in on culture war nonsense. And funny enough, they talk about it way more than the Democrats do. They insist as they talk about it, it's not us, it's the Democrats. The Democrats are bringing up this culture war stuff. No, they're not. So the biggest one is the Dr. Seuss thing that happened recently. Dr. Seuss Enterprises pulled six of their roughly 40 books. 
they just, the private company decided. Democrats in Washington, D.C. had Dickie McGee's acts to do with any of it. None of them talked about any of it. Dr. Seuss Enterprises made the decision on their own. And then Fox News and One American News Network and Newsmax were covering it. Oh, my God, the Democrats are, look at what, they're, they're even canceling Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss is canceling Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss Enterprises made the decision. And by the way, it was hilarious when Republicans tried to own them by buying those books in bulk. Hey, idiots, you're rewarding the same people who made the decision to take those six books away. What are you doing? God, they're so dumb. But listen, there's a reason why the Republicans only are talking about the culture war, because that's all they got. That's all they got. The entire conversation now in Washington, D.C. is what? The $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. All the Republicans are against it, even though the fucking thing polls at over 70%. Even 59% of Republicans are in favor of it. The voters. So they don't want to talk about that. Not a single Republican in the Senate voted for the $15 minimum wage, which polls at 67% in the country. They don't want to talk about that. They don't want to talk about uh, the fact that the vaccines were now moved up to May. They say by late May, everybody's going to have the ability to get a vaccine. Now, is that true? I don't know. But that's what they're saying. And the production is really ramped up under the Biden administration. They don't want to talk about that. Every single one of those things makes them look like the abject failures that they are. Now, I'm not saying the Democrats are good. They're not. They're also corrupt, incredibly corporate. But the Republicans are abysmal across the board in D.C. All of them in D.C. are too far gone. All of them. So they can't talk about substantive stuff. So what else do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. Let's talk about Dr. Seuss 24-7. Let's talk about Mr. Potato Head 24-7. Let's talk about Pepe Le Pew and Speedy Gonzalez 24-7. That's all they got. So what does Tim Ryan do? He goes out there and he says, shut the fuck up about Dr. Seuss and work on the PRO Act with us. Okay, so what's the PRO Act? He's talking about this is a pro-union piece of legislation. And what it does is it classifies independent contractors, or gig workers as they're called, it reclassifies them as employees. Why? Because when you're employees, you have certain labor rights and protections. When you're an independent contractor or a gig worker, you don't. So it reclassifies, it's all a scam. The independent contractor thing, the gig worker thing, it's a scam. There is no, like, it just makes it so that labor laws don't protect you, basically. So this bill says, no, you're all employees now. It also really kills those right-to-work laws, which are anti-union legislation in a lot of the conservative states. And really the way to think about a right-to-work law is it's a right-to-work for less. Because people in right-to-work states, anti-union jobs, they end up making less than their counterparts in, pro- excuse me, in pro-union states. And I believe it's over $1,000 a year, a lot more benefits and, and more money. So it kills the right-to-work laws, uh, and then it also bans company-enforced anti-union propaganda. When you're considering unionizing, oftentimes management sits you down and shows you some whatever video or PowerPoint presentation about how unions are so terrible, and so it bans those misleading um, events from happening. So it's a good piece of legislation, and thankfully it did just pass the House. Only one Democrat opposed it, uh, Henry Quillar, Quillar, however you say it, uh, Jessica Cisneros almost beat him. In, uh, in the election there last time. So he's the only Democrat who voted against it. Every other Democrat was for it, and even five Republicans crossed the aisle to vote for it. So that means the overwhelming majority of the Republicans were against this piece of legislation. So the point of Tim Ryan is, shut the fuck up about Dr. Seuss. None of us are even talking about Dr. Seuss. None of us did anything about Dr. Seuss. All you have is culture war garbage. Do something for workers. And guess what? The PRO Act is a piece of legislation that unquestionably would help workers. It's not a coincidence, guys, that at the time in the U.S., 
that we had the golden age of economic expansion, unionization rates were the highest they ever were. There's a direct correlation between how many people are in unions and how strong the middle class is. Not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. So we got to get back to that time. So on the substance of it, Tim Ryan's 100% correct. All the conservatives have is the culture war right now. And you need to understand they're diverting you. It's obfuscation. It's deflection. They're trying to take your attention and divert it elsewhere so that you don't realize how none of them are for raising the minimum wage. You don't realize how none of them were for the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. You know, you, they have nothing of substance to add on the economy. And so they only talk about social issues. And, by the way, insist that the Democrats have positions that they don't have. Okay. Okay, let me take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more, including a Morning Joe clip. I know how much all of you love Morning Joe. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
Alright, bitch. We are back, everybody. We are back, everybody. Mm. Okay. So, what do I have for you here for the second half of the show? Let me tell you. So, I got to play a morning Joe clip for you. Some MSNBC stuff, because... I'm a little bit disappointed in the left. What else is new? Um, but it's been, it's getting rubbed in at the moment. So we're going to talk about that. I also have the Milo Yiannopoulos thing we're going to get to. What's happening with immigration? Um, and the sneaky way that Biden just approved corruption. So... Still a lot of stuff to get to. All right, here we go. So the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, is uh, it passed the Senate. It's going to pass the House. Um, Probably already has by the time you're watching this. Um, And I don't want to give people the wrong impression as to this bill. There's a lot of good stuff in this bill. People need the help. You have the $3,000 child tax credit, which would cut child poverty in half. Um, You have the $300 a month unemployment. That was $400, but Joe Manchin uh, weaseled his way into reducing that. You have the $1,400 stimulus checks. You have relief for states that were getting obliterated as a result of COVID. The other part that nobody really talks about, but I think it's one of the most important parts of this bill, is that It basically saves over a million people's pensions. So that's huge. So again, I don't want to give everybody the wrong impression about this bill. This bill, in many ways, is a phenomenal piece of legislation. And I'm trying to pull up, as I talk to you guys right now, I'm trying to see if I can find, there's a Jeff Stein tweet. Here we go. Jeff Stein of the Washington Post. Here's, Here's what he says. It's a new analysis of Biden's stimulus. Poverty falls by 42% for black people as a result of this bill, 39% for Hispanic people, and 34% for white people. Overall, the bill lowers the poverty rate from 13.7% to 8.7%. So listen, that's amazing. And I like what Internet Hippo said about this. He says, so the government really has a reduced poverty dial that they could just crank? Yeah, they do. They do. And so it's almost inexcusable that they even left 8.7% of people in poverty. We should eliminate poverty. You know, poverty is a choice. It's a policy choice that we've made. Now, thankfully, we made the decision to reduce it, but we could eliminate it if we really wanted to. So anyway, um, there's some good stuff in the bill. But, but, keep it real, man. The two most important big ticket items that were the selling point of the bill are not in the bill. $2,000 $2,000 stimulus checks that was reduced to $1,400, the Weasley move where they said, you already got $600, so it's going to be $2,000 total. Nonsense. $2,000 checks and the $15 minimum wage. It's not in there. So now you're going to hear the conversation going on in elite media about this. You're going to see Morning Joe and one other MSNBC show. Look at how they're talking about the left in relation to this bill. And, and how were they dealing with uh, uh, their own party? I know that there were actually 
progressives that were complaining that this didn't do enough. Uh, there was some fighting going back and forth, uh, attacks against Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Um, how, how do they how do they feel uh, those back and forths are going? I, I would think almost every progressive, even just looking at Steve's charts, every progressive has to understand this is the most historic uh, piece of legislation to help working class and middle class Americans uh, that that this country has put forward in decades. Well, there was certainly some sarcastic behind the scenes commentary about Senate Majority Leader Joe Manchin, uh, considering the senator from West Virginia is outside the influence on the process right now. Those in the West Wing uh, weren't always delighted about that, but they, they recognized that they, deals had to get made. And in terms of attacks from the left, uh, they are actually really grateful for the support of Bernie Sanders, uh, who they believe has really given them progressive cover here. That yes, there are some on the very left portions of the party in the House who have some complaints, who might make a little bit of noise this week, but they feel like if Bernie Sanders is on board with this and he released a statement afterwards touting how historic it was and how necessary it was, the Democrats, the progressives will fall in line too. The uh, COVID relief package, uh, the vote seems to be sliding by a day as they try to get the text together for it. Do you see any challenges on the horizon getting this back through the House? I mean, progressives have been critical of Joe Manchin for essentially forcing them to negotiate with themselves, lowering that unemployment number. Um, do you see any problems? Or I, I mean, I have a hard time imagining someone's going to stand up and say, yeah, actually, I'm going to stand in the way of the Democratic president's first major priority. No, I mean, if it were Republicans, they probably would, and they would hold out for that last that last $100 a week in unemployment uh, insurance that Joe Manchin and Senate Democrats cut. I do think it's going to pass, Casey. I think it's going to pass easily. But remember, I mean, Nancy Pelosi has a five-speed margin before she um, is in big trouble or before she can't pass the bill. But, no, I do think the progressive left is going to stay with Joe Biden here and is going to deliver him his victory without much turbulence. I am. I was a bit surprised about that. I thought that there would be more kind of tumult on the left, but there's not. And and that's a big win for Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Joe Biden to get this bill across the finish line this week. I was skeptical, and we've talked about it before, that they would get this done by the March 14th deadline. But here we are, and it looks like they're going to. That is colossally depressing. It really is. It really is. So in the first clip there, they discuss how Bernie Sanders gave Joe Biden progressive cover on this bill. Bernie is giving his good friend Joe progressive cover. They say in the second clip, effectively, hey, the left is going to fall in line. There's a part where he says, quote, if they were Republicans, they probably would fight. If they were Republicans. They wouldn't fall in line. They would hold out for what they wanted. And then, then he starts laughing. He laughs. He's laughing at the left. He says, without much, much turbulence. Then he says, I was surprised. I was surprised that, you know, the left is basically falling in line with a whimper here. Not much fight. Honestly, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Now, Ro Khanna, a few days ago, or last week or something, drafted a letter and sent the letter to the Biden White House. And the letter basically said, we want that $15 minimum wage in there. You should overrule the parliamentarian. Um, 
Over 20 House Democrats signed that bill. Over 20. But then Roe went on in an interview to say, hey, if the $15 minimum wage doesn't make it into the bill, yeah, I'll probably vote for the bill anyway. So in other words, you wrote a letter suggesting to the Biden White House to overrule the parliamentarian who said, oh, $15 minimum wage can't be in there. Why the fuck would they ever listen to your suggestion? Why would they listen to your suggestion? There's no reason for them to listen to your suggestion. You're going to say, thanks, Ro. We're done here. We're going to go in the other direction. Why? Because they don't want to do a $15 minimum wage. The part that's so frustrating is this. Over 20 House Democrats signed that letter. If those over 20 House Democrats voted as a block, the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill would not be able to pass. It is a must-pass bill. So you know what? They would have had to take a seat at the table and figure out a way to get the House Democrats on board to vote for the bill. And the House Democrats could have said, there's more of us that are mandating the $15 minimum wage be in the bill than there are those that say it shouldn't be in the bill. So it's on you, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, to get to work. Go talk to Joe Manchin. Go talk to Kirsten Sinema. Go talk to the eight ones in the Senate. Chris Coons is supposed to be like a best bestie of Biden. Go talk to your boy, son. Go talk to your boy. And you play politics. So you say to them, listen, we could be best friends or we could be worst enemies. What do you want in order to support the $15 minimum wage? You tell me and I'm going to deliver on it. What do you want? You want something special for Delaware, Chris Coons? Okay, let's talk about what you want. What, what do you want money allocated for? I got you. Go talk to Joe Manchin. Joe, what do you want, man? What do you want? You want some sort of provision in the infrastructure bill that mandates double the amount of money goes to West Virginia? Is that what you want? I can make that happen, dog. I can make that happen. It's a carrot and stick approach. You can either be their best friend or their worst enemy. If you cross me on this, and if you don't vote for the $15 minimum wage, listen, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. You're going to support it. But if you don't support it, I'm going to make your life a living hell and your career in Washington, D.C. is over. And I'm going to take my 62% approval rating and campaign directly against you and support a primary opponent against you as well. How you like them apples? This is how you play politics. This is what you do. But guess what? Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were never going to fucking do that unless they were forced to do that. The only people who had the power to force them to do that were those over 20 House Democrats who could have voted as a block, said, no, we're not supporting this bill. You said $15 minimum wage. You said it. I didn't make you say it. You said it. It's a 67% issue, according to a poll from 2019. 67% of the country supports it. You're going to do what you promised, and I'm going to make you do what you promised. You said $15 minimum wage. We're not voting for this bill unless it has a $15 minimum wage in there. They didn't, they didn't fight. They didn't fight. You want to know why Joe Manchin always gets what he wants? Because he says, I'm not going to fucking vote for it unless it's what I want. So why are the House Democrats not doing that? You say you all want $15 minimum wage? Prove it. Fight for it. 67% of the country, if you're not going to fight on this, you're not going to fight on anything. And it's pathetic, even elite corporate media. You heard how they were talking about you. Bernie gave Biden progressive cover. Thank you, Bernie, for folding and not fighting for the $15 minimum wage. Uh, they're going to they're gonna fall in line. If they were Republicans, they would probably fight. Oh, I was surprised that, you know, with very little turbulence that they're all going to fall in line. You guys are embarrassing, man. You guys are embarrassing. And you know what? I think the reason why they don't want to do it, honestly, is because it's hard. It is hard. If you fight for $15 minimum wage, 
You know what's going to happen? All of Democratic leadership is going to rain holy hell down on you. You're going to have Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Joe Biden put you on their enemies list. That's what they're going to do. The media is going to try to slit your throat. They're going to try to absolutely destroy you. But you know what? This is one of those issues where it doesn't matter how deep the propaganda is and how much they come after you. You are on the moral high ground if you fight for it because you are representing 67% of the American people who don't want the minimum wage to not be a living wage anymore. You're fighting for the basic principle that if you work full time, you should make enough money to survive. That's what you're fighting for. You should love to take on that fight. You should bathe in the hatred of corporate media and the hatred of democratic leadership. Are you kidding me? I would lean into this fight like you've never seen before. I'd say, I dare you to take me on on this fight. I dare you. You want to debate it? Let's debate it. Did you know that if the minimum wage kept up with productivity, it'd be over $20 an hour today, and you're putting up a fight over 15 15 They don't want to do it because it's hard. Sorry. Listen, I know a lot of these people who are the left-wing Congress people. They care about what the media says about them. They do. They do. They want positive press. They don't want negative press. They care about what leadership thinks of them. They want pats on the head from leadership. They don't want to fight with leadership. So then listen, just acknowledge and admit you're not leaders. You're followers. Admit it. Admit it. That's, it's a fact. It's a fact. Leaders would fight on this. Leaders would take the fire from the media, would take the fire from leadership. That should be what you want to do. You should want that fight. And I don't care if it's the Republicans or if it's Democrats who are blocking me. You are my enemy on this issue if you're not for $15 minimum wage. Again, if you're not going to fight for this, you're not going to fight for anything. So pack it up. It's over. You know, the only stuff we're going to get through is the stuff that fucking Joe Manchin allows. So we basically have a moderate Republican president in Joe Biden and Joe Manchin, who's really the president. That's what we have. And, you know, some people might be okay with that little pocket change. I'm not okay with that. And working people aren't okay with that. And the world can't wait for that. So, you know, it's, it's honestly, it really is just pathetic. It's pathetic. If you're not going to fight for this, you're not going to fight for anything. So there's nothing else to say except your failures. Now, I told you, there are stuff in, there's stuff in that bill that's good. It was a must-pass bill, which is why this was the time to fight for $15 minimum wage. If you're not going to get it now, you're never going to get it. And you're not going to fight for it now, so you're never going to get it. You know what's likely to happen now? Either nothing on the $15, nothing on raising the minimum wage, or if they do something, it'll, it'll be this pathetic. You ready? They'll try to do some shit through regular order where they raise it to like $11 an hour. an hour, $11 an hour, maybe even 10 because they've got to get some Republicans to get over 60 votes, right? So they raise it to $10 an hour. They'll also link it to median wage increases or inflation. So you know what that does? It's an automatic raise year by year. Now, you say, Kyle, I don't know, that sounds pretty good to me, right? I mean, automatic raises, that's wonderful. You want to know why they would take this approach and why they would do it? Raising it from $7.25 to $10 or $11. Ten or eleven dollars is still not a living wage. So you work full time and you still don't make enough money to survive. And then by linking it to inflation or median wage increase, they give you the automatic raises, but it never gets to the point where it's a living wage. So the real dirty trick there is you never revisit the issue ever again. And the minimum wage is permanently not a living wage. 
Because anytime you bring it up, like, hey, I want to let's have a vote on raising the minimum wage to a living wage, they say, what are you crazy? We have a reasonable minimum wage, and it's and it, you, they get raises yearly because it's chained to inflation. So no, we're not going to vote on that. We're never going to vote on that again. They get the raises automatically. We don't need to revisit this issue. This issue is done. See how dirty it is? And all that could have been avoided if the left fought. Because over 20 said, we want the $15 minimum wage in there. But they're willing to say it and suggest it without leveraging their vote and fighting. So they don't even understand politics 101. Or, or they don't really want it as much as they say they do. They don't really care that much. Those are the only two options. Either they know absolutely nothing about politics, nothing about politics, or they know they just don't really care that much. I don't know which is worse. I think both things are incredibly pathetic. Okay. Next. This one is fun. I think that this one is fun. How many of you guys remember a guy by the name of Milo Yiannopoulos? Milo uh, is a far-right provocateur, is the word that was used to describe him the most. Um, he's kind of like a, like a famous troll who is incredibly conservative and he just owns the libs all day, or at least that's how he fancies himself. That's what he thinks he's doing. Um, he sort of became irrelevant. There was this, I think it was a Buzzfeed article that came out, which showed that he was like hanging out with Richard Spencer and kind of openly being white supremacist and even Nazi-ish, if you will, um, so I think ever since then, oh, and the, what was it, some, some he had an insane belief on pedophilia or something, and that also led, like, CPAC canceled a speech that he was supposed to give. This is years back now. Um, and so hilarious that they're always like, we're against canceling people, and then they canceled him. They also canceled uh, some rapper, I think it was, who said something anti-Semitic, and they were like, not allowing him to speak. He doesn't align with our values. And the whole theme of the thing was like anti-cancel culture. Anyway, hilarious. But so Milo is back in the news and here's why. LifeSite News says activist Milo Yiannopoulos is now ex-gay consecrating his life to St. Joseph. Oh my goodness. Ex-gay. So LifeSite asked him, last summer you posted on Parlor pictures of members of the changed movement with the caption, look at these beautiful souls rid of their demons, and cured of their sinful urges. Can't you tell they've been saved? I can. Are you now able to add your picture to theirs with that same caption? Milo says, no, and I don't suppose I'll ever be brave enough to declare it a thing of the past. I treat it like an addiction. You never stop being an alcoholic. Wow. I also love, this is a quote from the piece. You see underneath, um, this is just sad, underneath it says, he was never wholly at home in the gay lifestyle, adding that he only leaned heavily into it in public because it drove liberals crazy. Some people are really dedicated to owning the libs. 
Yeah, so if you ask me what is this, and this isn't, you know, this isn't a hot take necessarily that I have here. It's pretty straightforward. Um, this is Milo realizing how he's no longer in the public eye and he's no longer as famous as he was and he wants some attention. He craves that public attention. So this is him trying to stay relevant. And now the way he's trying to stay relevant is that he's becoming the who me, bro? I'm a believer in conversion therapy, gay conversion therapy. And you know what? I consider myself ex-gay. I still have the urges. It's like an addiction, and so I have to fight it. But I'm ex-gay, bro. That's what I am, and that's what I do. Um, the most hilarious fact about all this is he's married. He's married to a dude. He's been married to a dude for a long time. So I don't know how that works. I think there might have been some part of the article where he's like, oh, that guy's basically like a housemate of mine now. Come on, son. Come on. He's just he's trying desperately to stay relevant. But listen, it gets to a broader conversation here about the idea of gay conversion therapy. Um, it's nonsense. <laughs> it doesn't exist. And if you think, or it doesn't work, I should say. So if you think possible, stop and think about your own sexuality. Stop and think about, you know, whatever you're into. Do you think that through certain sorts of strategies and exercises or through force of will, you can override your own sexual inclinations? No, it sounds ridiculous, right? Like, what do you mean? You're just sort of into what you're into. Now, we can debate how you get to that point. Is it like, is it born that way for everybody with everything they're into? Or are there things that happen in your developmental stages when you're younger, which then give you a sexual map or sexual imprint, which then later on in life when you mature, it's there? It's one of those two. It's not just a choice. It's not just a choice. And so the people who argue that there's a thing here with gay conversion therapy, they're like, yeah, you could just override it by choice. And that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Of course you can't. Of course you can. That's as silly as saying you can override. Like, if you find somebody attractive, that, like, you could just decide to not think they're attractive. Like, yeah, no, I saw this person. I think they're attractive. But now I'm deciding to say that they're not and to believe that they're not and to think that they're not. I just find these things so silly. It's like saying I will, yeah, I mean, I'm a human being, so I have to urinate. I'm just going to not do that anymore. I'm deciding to override that part of my biology. That's not, that's not a thing. That's not possible. What a colossal waste of time and effort and energy to not win. So this is the same thing. But again, I don't think he, he doesn't mean a goddamn word of it. He's just trying to get attention. That's it. He just wants eyeballs on him and he wants people listening to him. And so his new thing is owning the libs by saying like, you know, I'm ex-gay or trying to be ex-gay. You're not owning anybody. In fact, we just look at you and we feel bad for you. It's like, um, Jesus, this, this happened just this week, too, again with Steven Crowder. Steven Crowder released another video of him dressed as a woman. Then, I mean, this guy looks for any excuse to dress like a woman. I swear to God, he's done it like every other week for years now. There's, I literally lost count of the number of times, I, separate times, I've seen Steven Crowder dressed as a woman. 
And listen, the guy's obsessed with transgender issues and being against trans people. But, so, but why are you dressing like a woman every seven and a half minutes, dog? It just, I mean, listen, I'm going to be the nice guy here, and I'm going to back away from the line, and I'm not going to give commentary as to what potentially could be happening there. But I don't need to say anything. I think you guys can fill in the blanks in your own mind. It's pretty clear what's going on there that, like, he's looking for excuses to do that because maybe he feels better when he's like that. So anyway, I, I, I view the Milo thing the same way I view that, which is, like, you think you're owning the libs. I just sort of feel bad for you, and I kind of want you to stop being a mess, you know, or live in accordance with who you really are. So anyway, Jesus, it's so silly. Imagine your whole life philosophy and the driving force in your being and your existence is just like triggering the libs. Imagine that. It's just so hollow and vapid and empty. And I can't believe they like doing it, and I can't believe anybody watches it and finds it, like, damn interesting or entertaining or persuasive. Okay, next. Joe Biden is um, really living up to the view of him that the left already had. Here's a new report as to what's happening at the border. Go now to the border, though, where there are new concerns about another potential humanitarian crisis. Two sources confirmed to NBC News that more than 3,200 unaccompanied migrant children are in Border Patrol custody. That number is a record. Nearly half of the children have been held beyond the three-day legal limit, some in holding cells that aren't designed for kids. And according to a source, nearly 170 of these children are under the age of 13. The New York Times was first to report the number of detained children, and the paper, citing International Customs and Border Patrol documents, internal, excuse me, Customs and Border Patrol documents, reported that the number has tripled in the last two weeks. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas led a team of senior administration officials to the southern border on Saturday to tour holding facilities. The White House says those officials intend to brief President Biden about what they expect. So everybody's going to go after him for this. The right-wingers are making an incredibly dumb argument of like, looks like Biden opened the borders. That's what happened. Biden's pro-open borders. He's listening to the open borders uh, Democratic politicians. By the way, there's like negative six of them. (laughs) Even the ones who you think are open borders, when you listen to them talk, they're not describing open borders at all. They're not in favor of literally just opening borders. If anything, you know, the strongest support for open borders I've ever seen is actually from the libertarian community. There are real anti-government, small government libertarians who say, you know, a border is inherently oppressive or whatever, and they want to get rid of the border. I've, the lefty Congress people are not in favor of open borders, in the same way that they're not in favor of defund the police. Um, maybe Cory Bush is, but defund the police is not the conception that people think of, like, totally abolish the police and have no law enforcement. The idea is to, like, reduce the funding and then give the funding to social services so that, you know, maybe a mental health professional shows up when they're needed as opposed to somebody with a gun. Anyway, I digress. 
the right wing is saying, oh, look, more people at the border. Biden opened the borders. Biden opened the borders. Nonsense. In fact, the border is still closed, but people are coming in, especially with COVID. There are border restrictions, but people are circumventing that and coming in illegally. So that's what the right is saying. The left is saying, well, well, well. You guys railed against Trump's kids in cages. There are still kids in cages. And in fact, there are more kids in cages than before. That's a fact. And the euphemisms and and the phrasing that mainstream media is using now that it's Biden who's the president is like, you'll see the comparisons like kids locked in cages under Trump. And then it becomes like temporary holding facility for minors with various accoutrements. Like they, I'm, I'm making that up, but like the, the phrasing is so much more like value neutral and benign when describing the exact same thing happening under Biden. And it reminds me, you know, there was the famous picture of a kid in a cage that uh, resurfaced under the Trump administration. Everybody was blaming Trump. Turns out the picture was from Obama and Biden's era. So, yeah, there are kids in cages. There's still kids in cages. Um, and now, you, I'm sorry, you just don't hear as much noise about it now that Biden's president. Elite liberals are just sort of ignoring it now. The only people who are being consistent are really the left, who was against it under Trump, and now they're against it under Biden. But, yeah, I mean, this gets to a broader question of what the hell do we do with this issue? I mean, I would argue that the real long-term solution is to make it so that people don't want to leave their home countries. And I know that might be a little bit simplistic to talk about this issue in that way, but is it really? Because when you talk about long-term goals, yeah, if you, for example, end the drug war, Um, that would greatly diminish the power of the cartels, which would make these places that these immigrants are fleeing from a lot better. People usually don't want to leave everything they've ever known. They don't want to leave their homeland. They don't want to do it. They do it because they have to do it. They feel like they have to do it because of violence, crime, whatever it may be. So, yes, what you'd want to do is end the drug war, legalize tax and regulate drugs, but then also make it so that the economic situation is not so... um, terrible as well. So exploitative trade deals also are a part of this. You want to revitalize the local economies where these people are fleeing from and just make it so that that's not what they end up doing. That's not what they feel like they have to do. Um, So really that's the answer, but that's a more complex question. And we're talking about long-term solutions. And unfortunately the way everything is discussed now is what do we do in the short term? What do we do about this? And I, I mean, I hate to to say this part of it, but that I don't, I don't even know. I have no idea. Like, what do you do in the short term with this? I don't know. Do you take the kids who just crossed the border and immediately send them back because people would attack you for that? Do you take them and keep them in these facilities? People would attack you for that. Do you let them in and then just release them among the broader population? Uh, people would come after you for that. There's literally no good answer. So really the entire conversation should be the long-term conversation. Okay. Next, 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 next. Next, bitch.
All right, my co-host Crystal Ball is reading a book and uh, highlighting some interesting parts. I want to share a passage from one of these with you um, because it really, really, really shows the true nature of the Democratic establishment and who they viewed as their real enemy. I'm actually, at the moment... um, We're discussing who um, we're discussing the guests for this week and next week. We're discussing who the guests are for this week and next week and the week after. And we're doing a little bit of shuffling around at the moment. So uh, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit difficult. I'm trying to do the show and also schedule what's happening. I I can, I'll, I'll give you some teases. At some point in the near future, we have Andrew Yang coming on, Cornell West coming on, Shoe On Head coming on June. Okay. So there's a new book that was just released. Uh, The book is called Lucky, and my co-host Crystal Ball is reading it, and she's absolutely floored by some of the facts coming out of this book. It's about the Democratic primary that just happened. So Crystal says, in the new book Lucky from Amy Parnes and John Allen, they've got centrist Dems admitting that they would just as soon lose to Trump as get behind Bernie Sanders. I guess fascism and Medicare for all were equally horrifying to them. And so you can see the passage there. The highlighted portion says, many unnerved Democratic establishment centrists weren't sure what they would do if it came down to Trump and Sanders in a general election. Founded or not, their fears of losing their party to socialism competed with their fears of Trump winning a second term. Wow. So they were admitting it behind the scenes. They were admitting it behind the scenes. There's another part of the book where Bill Clinton said to Tom Perez, who was the head of the DNC, your one goal, your one goal is to make sure this doesn't become Bernie Sanders' party. Your one goal. Barack Obama behind the scenes was doing everything he could to undermine Bernie, even to the extent where he gave a speech to a diverse array of Wall Street executives, and he was talking up Elizabeth Warren to this group of people. Hillary Clinton, when it looked like Bernie was surging and was probably going to win the whole thing, Hillary Clinton was behind the scenes very seriously considering jumping back into the race, and she was calculating what the best approach would be. Like, hey, if I jump in, am I splitting that centrist vote more, which is going to help Bernie more, or... Would I consolidate the centrist vote and beat Bernie? So they were really, really panicked 
and they didn't know how to react, but they viewed their one goal as beating Bernie Sanders. And I have to correct them in this book here. They're not beating, quote-unquote, socialism. They're beating social democracy. And by the way, that should infuriate all of you, that the Democratic Party, so many years after FDR, who was a wildly successful Democratic president, they are snubbing the New Deal Democrat legacy and era. So they are snubbing a tremendously successful president and even, you could argue, the presidents after until Bill Clinton, the Democratic presidents after until Bill Clinton. So Lyndon Lyndon Johnson, JFK, to one extent or another, they all embraced FDR's legacy. It was with Ronald Reagan and then Bill Clinton after him where the, the era of big government is over. There was a time when people realized government needs to be involved in solving certain problems. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, um, building out the infrastructure for this entire country, as FDR did, the shovel-ready projects, um, unionization, encouraging unionization. So the Democrats being this hostile to a New Deal approach, to a social democratic approach, tells you everything you need to know about this Democratic Party, that their whole existence is neoliberal corporatism. Their whole existence is to please their corporate donors and privatize as much of the economy as possible. So in other words, the Democratic Party is just the moderate Republican Party. Because on social issues, they're like, hey, we don't hate black people and brown people and gay people. We're cool with them. Um, But in terms of the economy, yeah, they might favor a slightly higher top marginal tax rate on the wealthy. But that's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. It was Bill Clinton who signed the repeal of Glass-Steagall, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which led to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. It is a moderate Republican Party. And now you know, behind the scenes, they were like, if it's Bernie or Trump, I don't even know, dog. I don't even know. So funny enough, the same thing they accuse the left of doing. They say about the left, oh, man, they would rather vote for Trump than vote for one of us centrist Democrats. They accuse the left of, like, coddling Trump and the Bernie people of coddling Trump. When they were behind the scenes actually doing that. Hey, I don't know what I'd do if it's Bernie versus Trump. Really? Really? It would have been amazing to see who ended up supporting Bernie and who defected and either voted for Trump or stayed out of it. But there's a lot of corporate Democrats, the establishment Democrats, who would have shown who they really are. And now we know behind the scenes, and this book highlights it in crystal clear terms, that they were doing anything and everything they possibly could to try to take down Bernie. Their whole existence, their whole strategy was, whatever you do, defeat Bernie Sanders. So hopefully they can only fight back this tide of social democracy for a short amount of time. Hopefully the the wave of young people getting involved in politics overcomes their corporatism and their smoke-filled backroom deals. But there you have it. This is quite admission, and that book is full of various admissions. And uh, Crystal and I will be talking about more of this very likely on our next episode of Crystal, Kyle, and Friends. Okay.
All right, let me let me just take a quick break. Still trying to work out guests on Crystal Kyle and Friends at the moment, and I need a little bit of time here. Um, when we come back, I got some more stuff on Trump and the swamp, and then I have the sneaky way Democrats approved of corruption. You don't want to miss any of this stuff. Stay right there, guys.
All right, y'all. All right, I'm back. Didn't really get it resolved, but tried. Um, We're juggling. There's a few guests who are able to do it this week, and we're discussing which one um, we're going to go with or try to go with. So it's a little bit of a mess, but the good news is that no matter what, we have some pretty solid guests lined up for the next three or four weeks. So pretty cool stuff, if you ask me. Pretty cool stuff. Um, let me – I have two more for you. One of them – it's funny because this is perfectly indicative of the way that Washington works, is we have one on Republican corruption and one on Democratic corruption which is just all too perfect. Okay, here we go. Okay. President Trump, even though, or former President Trump, as I should say, even though he's out of office, he's still making news and... This one is interesting. Let me tell you about it, and then I'll break it down for you. This is in The Hill. They say, the Republican National Committee will hold part of its spring donors retreat next month at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club. The retreat, which is scheduled to run from April 9th to 11th, is expected to draw some of the GOP's biggest donors to Palm Beach, Florida, and will feature a speech by Trump, who continues to retain his grip on the party. Most of the gathering will take place at a nearby luxury hotel, but the RNC plans to hold a Saturday evening dinner at Mar-a-Lago to accommodate Trump. The plan to hold a portion of the donors' retreat at Trump's private club was first reported on Monday by the Washington Post. A person familiar with the plans confirmed the move to the Hill. Okay, so why, why is he doing this? Um... Well, if you remember a story we covered last week, or we covered the last show, I should say, apparently Trump sent a cease and desist letter to the RNC because the RNC was using what's called his likeness. So we're using his name or his picture or whatever to try to get donations from Republican voters, from average Joes and Janes. Um, Trump sent a cease and desist letter to them and said, I didn't say you could use my likeness. Stop using my likeness. Because he's mad that some members of the Republican Party, Liz Cheney, those types, uh, are against him and supported impeachment. And um, so he wants to purge the party of the rhinos, as he says. He's also trying to redirect donations. He sent out a fundraising letter saying, don't give to the Republican Party, give to me and my pack. And I'll show you which Republicans are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones. So definitely going to make a lot of money out of this. That's the first point. But the second point is there was definitely a phone call between Trump and the RNC. And there had to be some sort of an agreement where he said, oh, you want to use my likeness? Interesting. Well, and I'm sorry, but you're going to have to pay the piper. So how did he go about that? Well, he's having official RNC events with the biggest donors at Mar-a-Lago. So he gets the money from the donors going into his business and from the RNC going into his business, but then also... Now he's got a direct line of communication with the donors, and he's the speaker. 
So you see what he's doing here? He's using his name and his power, and he's leveraging that to get stuff from the RNC, get stuff from the top Republican donors. Like I said, it was a, that is an amazing move that he made where he was like, don't give to Republicans, just give to me. Here, give it to my pack, and we'll determine. I'll tell you which ones are the good ones and which ones are the bad ones. Brazen, man, really brazen. So Trump is making moves behind the scenes. And it, see, here's the thing, though. It's difficult to tell which things he's doing that are just solely for monetary financial gain. There are some things he's doing that's just like, I want to make money and I'm going to do certain things to make money. Um, and then there's other things he's doing where, you know, you think, oh, he's definitely running again in 2024. And so he's trying to get things in order to run in 2024. And beyond him running, he wants to sort of purge the Republican Party of the anti-Trump Republicans. Now, I don't know what to make of this from a, from a politics perspective, though, because now the conventional wisdom is Trump lost the White House and he'd lose again if he ran again. And the, Trump, the Trump-like candidates don't do well in the suburbs, and the Republicans kind of need the suburbs in order to maintain a hold on power or a majority in D.C. So there's a few different ways to view this. The other way to view it is like, well, it's not like the establishment Republicans would do better than the Trump-like Republicans, so maybe the Trump-like Republicans are their only hope. So I don't know about the political angle of this, but what I do know is Trump is making money and Trump is trying to position himself where if he runs in 2024, he's the main guy. And he's already repeatedly bitch slapped the RNC and gotten them to fall in line. And so there is a line of communication open behind the scenes and he's getting his way. Okay, next. Next, 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 and final story. Here we go. It is the Democrats' corruption now, and Joe Biden. What the fuck? Why is this not working? Okay. So, um, you got to keep your eye on these politicians, man. You really do. Because sometimes they say things, and at face value it sounds good, but then you look into the specifics and the details, and as they say, the devil's in the details, and you find out, no, what they're doing is just a veneer of change while keeping everything the same. So take a look at this from Andrew Perez, who does some fantastic work. I think he does it for um, the Daily Poster, David Sirota's outlet. He says, the Biden SBA, Small Business Administration, just partially gut Dem policies provision to keep corporate lobbying groups from getting PPP loans. If they only count federal lobbying as lobbying, state-focused lobbying groups, there are tons, can still get forgivable COVID loans. And he says, you fuckers. So do you understand what that means? They do this Weasley thing where they try to take credit of like, who us, bro? No big deal or anything, but we're just going to go ahead and ban lobbyists from getting money under our COVID relief packages. Because we're like anti-corruption and stuff. No big deal. But then when you read the specifics, they're like, well, what if we define lobbyists as only at the federal level and we still let the state-level corporate lobbyists get involved and they can get money out of these COVID relief bills? So there you have it. Another gigantic loophole, which effectively keeps the status quo exactly as it is. And this is what's happened so many times. Like the headlines with... I remember reading the headlines and being so excited of, like, Biden's going to 
basically shut down private prisons. The headlines were very clear, like, oh, you know, Biden's going after the private prisons. And then you read the specifics, and the specifics are like, only the ones from the Department of Homeland Security, there's only a handful with the Department of Homeland Security, and it doesn't affect that many. ICE, like over 60% of ICE's prisons are private prisons, and they'll stay open. And they'll stay open. So it was a very narrow, limited thing, which got him like glowing headlines, but the substance wasn't there. And there's been so many instances of that. The Buy America provision, where I was like, this is awesome. He's signing a Buy America provision. That's the thing Trump didn't sign. Well, you read the specifics. And again, it's also just like Trump. It was a very weaselly thing where it's not going as far as you'd want it to go. And so time and time again, we see this stuff. And honestly, I don't think people know the details of this stuff, but this is effectively why people hate politics. It's because you get burned and you get burned repeatedly. And it's sort of brazen and in your face. And so it makes sense to hate politics when you see this stuff because they're being weasel, weasels and liars, you know, like the minimum wage. A lot of the, the eight Democrats, many of the eight Democrats in the Senate who ended up opposing the $15 minimum wage, they had tweets supporting increasing the minimum wage, and then they didn't support it. So in that case, it wasn't even just Weasley. It was just lies. They were just lying every step of the way. So listen, this is disgusting, man. It's disgusting. And you always got to keep your eye out. The devil is always in the details. So just be cautious moving forward. Anytime you see something that's positive, you got to dig beneath the surface to find out what's really going on. Okay, guys. We are done, baby. I love y'all. I'll talk to you soon. Looking forward to Crystal Kion Friends this week. It's either John Nichols or Cornell West. Not sure yet which one, but love you guys, and I'll talk to you soon. Have a good one. Peace.